welcome to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. This is a conversation for educators and leaders in the health professions. I'm your host, Victoria Brazel. So welcome to our next Harvard Macy Institute podcast. This uh, episode, we're going to be talking about online education in a hurry, delivering pediatric graduate medical education during COVID-19. This is a publication in progress in pediatric cardiology from November 2020. And today I'm joined by two of the authors of the paper, Sarah Teal and Tracy Walbrink, who will also be known to Harvard Macy Institute community uh, for their work in that area, as well as in many others. So just by way of introduction to the paper, and then I'm going to talk about our guests. Uh, This paper is described as uh, one approach to redesigning the clinical learning system, including a description of the learners and environment, the pedagogical principles that guided the approach and technological tools used in implementation. And uh, who I've got with me is first author, Sarah Teal, who's a pediatric cardiologist from the Boston Children's Hospital, where she works in the pediatric intensive care unit. She's a clinical researcher and educator, including the fellowship program director there. How are you, Sarah? I'm good. Thank you. That's good. And I've also got Tracy Walbrink with me, who is the senior author on this paper. She's a pediatric critical care physician and the co-director of Open Pediatrics. We're going to talk about a little bit more later. How are you, Tracy? I'm great. Thank you. Good. Well, these ladies are joining me from uh, Boston. uh, And But that said, what they're talking about, I think, has been a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, The background to this paper is familiar to many. Uh, The pandemic has meant we really had to change many things, but in particular, the way that we approach the teaching and learning for our clinical learners in healthcare. Uh, And the Boston Children's Hospital is like many institutions, and I sort of wanted to start with a little bit of that setting. Um, You know, there's on-the-job clinical training. We have large interprofessional teams. People get together for their teaching conferences and their research. And uh, in the background to the paper, you describe that there's um, 37 trainees, more than 70 faculty, and so pretty busy educational units. So, Sarah, could you just give us a little bit of a sense of that? Um, This feels pretty familiar to many. Uh, These practices weren't exactly by design. Is it just the disruption we needed to have, do you think? Yes. Uh, This is a short answer to a long question. You know, I think we very much had the apprentice model of you were on the job, you took care of patients side by side, you watched your mentors and you learned how to do it. And we did tuck in some educational conferences here and there. Um, but people often came in, grabbed a sandwich and took off again. And, and so certainly not to under or downplay the pandemic. And um, I am incredibly grateful to the people who were the frontline providers taking care of the mostly adults who were sick with COVID-19. But there were a number of us who were left uh, with some time on our hands and a lot of learners who were bereft and trying to think about a way to really support them. And I coincidentally happened to be taking a technology and education course with Tony Sindelar through the MGH IHP program. I had also actually just returned from New Zealand, and my father is a pediatric infectious disease expert and was quite worried about this. And standing in LAX watching all these hundreds of people come through customs, it became incredibly clear early on that this was going to be a big deal. 
So I um, fairly quickly moved through Kubler-Ross, the stages of uh, grief, and said, how on earth can I do something positive in what's a very challenging situation? And so that's how this came about. Yeah, and uh, you're right, there's a lot in there. And one of the things I want to pick up on is, as you say, this has been multifaceted uh, dilemma for people, but one has been the COVID itself and the other has actually been the response to it. And as you say, whether you are in an adult or if you're in a highly infectious area or not, in fact, what we've done in terms of constraints appropriately have been as, in some cases, as much of an impact as the uh, pandemic itself. So if we sort of think about that, and uh, as I said, we recognize the dilemma, but it's about, this paper is about what you did in response to that. And as you said, there's an emotional aspect to that going through the stages of grief, Uh, but then there's a practical aspect. And I'm going to really jump into the paper here where you describe the goals that you had for what you were going to do uh, in response to the pandemic. And I really wanted to read these out because I think that's not where most of us start. Most of us started with, you know, appropriately panic mode strategies. And then we thought, oh my goodness, what technology can we use? Whereas you really, uh, sat down and had some, uh, clear goals. And they are, and I'm going to read them out here, uh, to provide high yield synchronous and asynchronous learning opportunities, to create an online community, to utilise and curate high-quality resources that were readily available, to centralise currently available learning tools and resources, and to elicit real-time informal and formal feedback. And the reason I wanted to highlight these, because I think this is pretty impressive considering the temptation is to start with format and content, Um, how do we go about forcing ourselves to take that important strategy step? Again, I'll start with you, Sarah, but I'm interested in Tracy's thoughts on this too. Well, I give Tony my professor of that course, a tremendous amount of credit because he drilled into us right from the beginning, the importance of backwards design and this idea of uh, essentially start with what your desired results are and then go backwards from there through the performance tasks that you would have in mind to get to those results and then the actual practical learning plan. And the idea is that if you can establish that foundation and weave throughout it the important pedagogical principles that you have about adult learning and how to get um, intrinsic motivation and those sorts of things, then what you get at the end and how you use technology is going to come out to a nice, well-rounded, what's the right word for that? Nice, well-rounded outcome. Um, And I think that I give Tony the credit for having that mindset and making sure that I approached it that way. Mm, And I think that's a nice uh, little advertisement for actually doing some formal learning in education if we are clinician educators. And I will put the link for listeners in our podcast notes to the MGH IHP uh, program that Sarah's talking about. Uh, Tracy, do you have similar thoughts about that, starting with the end in mind? So easy to say, and yet most of us don't really do it, do we? Absolutely. And I think, you know, this really goes back to, you know, just sticking with the, um, the, the, a pedagogy and a pedagogical approach to your your teaching and your learning. And one of the frameworks I like to use is the TPAC model. So that as an educator thinking about using technology, you not only have to have content knowledge, but you have to have the technological knowledge, the pedagogical pedagogical knowledge and the content knowledge. So TPAC. And once you figure out what you want to learn, you can figure out what technology supports your learning and not the other way around. And so really, you know, you've got to bring all of these goals first and foremost before you even start designing your project. 
Mm, absolutely. Well, actually, that's probably a nice segue because obviously we do have to then start talking about technology. And I think this has been one of the dilemmas in online learning is since we don't have the face-to-face place, we still have to find a place and that is some kind of platform, learning management system. Uh, it says in the article, you didn't have a specific learning management system at the Boston Children's Hospital, but fortunately for you, you did have access to this platform, Open Pediatrics, and you were able to create a sort of bespoke private site within that. So, uh, Tracy, here's your time to shine. I know this has been a passion of yours, but tell us a little bit about Open Pediatrics because you've been doing this for a little while and probably evolved your thoughts about this place for online learning. Yeah, thank you. You know, Open Pediatrics, uh, we started this project in 2008 with a goal to create a social learning platform that was open to healthcare professionals designed by healthcare professionals for healthcare professionals, really to create content that people could then take and incorporate into their own learning. So into their own learning environments, create their own learning environments. And and we also created these uh, private groups in our Open Pediatrics platform so that people could come together and incorporate some open pediatrics content, as well as provide additional content that they're thinking of, additional resources. And so I think we were uniquely poised to really, um, you know, shine during the pandemic and and be utilized by a lot of programs. And uh, both within the hospital and outside of the hospital, uh, we had a lot of educators approach us to say, hey, I've got this need right now to get things up super quickly. Can you help? And by having the platform in place, that just made this really easy to do. And as you say, this is an advantage of using something like Google Classroom or Blackboard or something in that you already had a bunch of actual content stuff in there that was relevant and then people could create their own site, um, which I guess is a sort of model that many people have done because most of us don't want to write our own code and actually <laughs> start up our own platform. But even amongst the plethora of opportunities, Blackboard, Moodle, all those others, there's so many of those things. Uh just to sort of flesh out this a bit more, there is a sheer volume of options. Uh, not everybody's got open pediatrics at their disposal. Uh, I guess we could at one level see this as a triumph of innovation, the sheer number of platforms that are out there. Um, but I suppose at the other side, it means it's difficult. Many of us have multiple online personas, and so we need to be across dozens of tools and platforms. Even just thinking about making this podcast, you know, we're recording it on something called Squarespace. I'm going to edit it on something called Hindenburg. I'm going to run it through Orphonic to optimize the technology. Then we're going to post it on Podbean. Then we're going to distribute it via Apple Podcasts. I mean, this is just uh, does your head in if you start thinking about it. Is it a triumph of innovation that we've got so many options, or is it actually a failure for us to? create some uniform practice, Tracy? I I think it's a triumph. I think, uh, you know, the the ability for an individual to find one technology that they really like and stick with it, I think is unique. You know, there are so many things that are being developed every single day that are getting better and better. And so if you stick with a single thing and are very rigid and, and only able to use one platform, I think you get stuck. And, you know, by having this large amount of resources, it's overwhelming when you get started. But really, I think it focuses educators to think about um, pick one, pick one that you like, pick one that that works for you and go with it. And most of the, the programs that are within a specific domain, almost all the podcasting softwares function in the same way. So pick one you like and stick with it and know that we're not in charge of the technologies most of the time. And so they may come and go, but our resources and what we want to do and that learning that we have doesn't go away. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sarah, I imagine just to bring this then to a sort of granular level, you might have decided what you were going to do, but I can imagine there were a few people, whether they were the learners or the faculty, who said, oh, but I've got this great idea or I've got this platform I use. How did you go about getting everybody on board with uh, with your choice? Well, I think that was the beauty of having had that experience with Open Pediatrics before. We found out that we were going to be remote on a, well, we found out on Friday that we were going to be remote on a Monday. I was actually on call both Friday and Sunday night in the ICU, so arguably clinically busy. And Tracy's team helped me get this up and running live so that it was ready to go by Monday morning. And I also, at the time, was learning how to screencast. So I screencasted a video on how people could log in and it doesn't, it's not complicated. Um, And I think getting the faculty over that first hump of, oh my goodness, this is happening in the world. And oh my goodness, now I need to turn on my computer to do my job and to interact with people. That was actually one of the biggest hurdles is getting everybody on the same page from a technology standpoint. I am so lucky to work with amazing fellows who are just eager for any kind of learning opportunities and incredibly grateful for that. And actually nobody said boo. Everyone jumped in. Um, It was wonderful. Mm. Oh, that's good to hear uh, because I think that was one of the sources of anxiety for many in healthcare was the so many sources of information, not just for learning, but also just thinking about the practice guidelines and the things that were coming at us. So I think it probably served some of that emotional reassurance as well that uh, all of us certainly needed and continue to need. All right, well, let's turn our attention then to the content. And uh, many listeners will not be, will be more like me and not experts in pediatric cardiology. But uh, there's a few pretty nice granular examples that you go through here about things like atrial septal defect to sort of illustrate what you've done. But Sarah, can I ask you the sort of question about what you did and also about how you manage to choose the resources and the content that you put on there, because it's easy to find a million bits of stuff, but how do you actually go about curating the good stuff that uh, is going to have that tricky balance between having many options, but at the same time, not being overwhelming? Let's see. Okay. I want to answer this in a way that sounds relatively clear and coherent. I think so. there were two components. The first was the synchronous component. And in many ways, that was not particularly unique. I will say that we got it up and running efficiently um, by March 16th, and then also really tried to get the faculty to focus on threshold concepts and things that might have been overlooked in a busy day-to-day clinical environment, but are important foundational concepts. Um, And we recorded those as long as they didn't uh, contain patient information, and then we put them up on Open Pediatrics with the notable resources affiliated with that. Um, pathology lecture, for example, and then linked things across different lesions so that people could start creating webs of knowledge. The asynchronous part was a little bit more of my joy in that um, I created that, uh, again, as I was thinking about what we could do for people. And the idea here is that pediatric cardiology in particular lends itself so nicely to combining um, embryology, anatomy, physiology, and then imaging procedural work and then putting it all together and even thinking about that in a metacognitive way um, over a patient's lifetime and outcome-wise. And so the map that I created was an attempt to have the fellows um, put together a 
concept web, perhaps. I'm a big fan of make it stick. And I love this idea that if you can start connecting things, that even if you can just remember a small piece, if you start to tug on that in your subconscious, it pulls the whole thing out into your conscious. Um, And so that concept map was really meant to do that. And then also to get into those higher levels of blooms in terms of the creating things and also the higher levels of knowledge, if you're going to look for sort of a more advanced three-dimensional model of Bloom's taxonomy. And then from there, once that concept map was created, we asked the fellows to curate three key resources. And Tracy could probably speak to this more eloquently than I could, but so much of what we do these days in medicine is to pick out the resources that we need to make a good decision or to understand the pathophysiology or the right medicine. And that ability to look through a huge amount of literature and really pick out the gold, that's a skill set. And so if we could help develop that, that was one way to do this. And then the last piece of the asynchronous activity was creating these ACGME or the um, American College of Graduate Medical Education type board questions. Again, critical thinking about creating a question, thinking through how you would ask it, why answers were wrong, as well as why the right answer was correct, and then writing that explanation out so that when we populated them into QStream and use them later on in the year, people had to go back and read, this is why your answer was correct, or this is why your answer was incorrect, and reinforce that learning over time. So trying to, again, pull in the all the cool things you can do with technology, but then also going back to those really basic principles, how, that, how people learn, especially how do adults learn. Now, listeners, if you're just listening to this podcast, can I just suggest you rewind and listen to that three minutes again, because it was gold. There's so many things, Sarah, that you've brought out so beautifully uh, just there, thinking about how you connect webs of knowledge, and then also thinking about how you link that uh, to assessment and how you link that to uh, different domains of knowledge and different competencies. And if I can suggest, listeners, that you also go to the paper and have a look at the supplementary material because there's one of those uh, maps in there and my mind was blown about atrial septal defect. I mean, I thought I knew a little bit about it, but I started to understand all the linkages that you are talking about and, as you say, really focused on how does this guide practice. It's not just knowledge and information for its own sake, but what are the reasons that you might go to surgery versus other things. So, um, but I will get Tracy to comment on what you spoke about, this really big issue of curation and picking out things that are a combination of clinical decision support and core learning. Did you want to speak to this idea about curation? Because that would have been a big part of what you've done at Open Pediatrics as well. Yeah, I think that the such a crucial point for educators in that we can't all sit down and create content over and over and over again. And in fact, that would be nonsense to do so. And so we have to figure out ways that we can basically assess what's out there, making sure that our our resources are trustworthy, that they're, they're, um, they have an appropriate peer review process, that they come from a reputable source, and that they really are going to provide um, education and training that we need. There are a lot of um, evaluation tools that are out there for medical education sites, and I'd encourage um, people to kind of look at some of those as, as they're evaluating different content. I think we do it naturally. We're pretty quick to say, oh, yes, this person looks like they're uh, a faculty member at this university, and that seems reasonable. Um, 
it's harder to tell when you're on YouTube and is Dr. Bob really a doctor um, or is Dr. Bob just someone who's posing as a doctor? So I think being careful of the curation um, is really is one element. And the second element is, you know, I think a lot of us learn about resources by word of mouth. And that's such an important um, way to hear about resources. And so a lot of the educators that are doing a great job curating these these content um, pieces are doing so and reposting them so that others can find them. And I think that's another really important way that we're sharing knowledge really broadly and quickly. Yeah, and it really emphasizes uh, other strategies that you've no doubt been talking about in your course, Sarah, things like peer learning and how do we actually have communities of practice that enable us to do that. Um, Sarah, can I also get you just to describe another part in the paper, and that is about the sort of Zoom sessions and how you did try to really um, cultivate these communities of practice or these teams to get really focused on tasks. So this wasn't just here's your stuff, access it passively. You really pushed them to uh, do some work together. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the teams and how that worked? Yeah, so we intentionally mixed them up by different levels of experience, so different years within the fellowship program as well as senior fellows because we have a, quite a large senior fellow program. The idea being that they could lean on one another for mentorship uh, guidance and that hopefully that would translate into the post-pandemic era as well. You know, the world is so incredibly small. And then you take the world of pediatric cardiology and these are your future faculty peers and the people you're going to lean on at conferences and want to do research projects with. And so ways to start to develop those relationships early on was really important. Plus, I think it gave people a sense of peace or I shouldn't go that far, but an anchor perhaps in what felt like a very chaotic time to know that they were going to have these connections and have these meetings. We also can put them with um, a faculty coach as well. You know, I think a lot of our faculty, and I maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but a lot of us struggled with how can we make the world a better place in this weird role that we have right now. And so being the person who was cheering on the fellows and being involved was really important to a number of our faculty members. And I had volunteers and just assigned them a team. Yeah, fantastic. And I think um, that really captures, as you said, a lot of the needs we had, but also just some realities about learning. It is socially constructed. It isn't something we can easily do just uh, on our computers uh, asynchronously. Some of it may be, but certainly we need that uh, group around us. All right. So um, again, I'll get people to have a look at the uh, paper for a deeper description of, of some of those processes, but I wanted to then um, start to think about, did it work? And you've got a little section in there, Sarah, on the assessment or evaluation of the program. Uh, and I think you've got a sort of generally good feel about it, but you also, I think, felt like there would have been more opportunities to evaluate the effectiveness. But um, how do we know whether something like this works, Sarah? And I'll get you to speak to the your program, and then I might ask Tracy about this uh, more broadly. Absolutely. So, you know, the Macy educators course drove home. If you're going to do something, you got to know whether it's working or not, and you got to study it. Uh, so I had come up with a modified survey tool that I posted to the fellows, oh, about, I think, six weeks in or so. And I got a fair bit of response, I think 70% response, a decent amount for a survey. And in general, it, it was very well received. Uh, we got a lot of positive feedback. Although I think some of the practical things that I would have loved, and this is just has to do with the fact that it was a private group on open pediatrics, is I don't know how many times people logged on to the open pediatrics site. I don't know what time of 
day they did that. And and I'll defer to Tracy on because I know she's done work in this area. But that's that's also what I wanted to know. How actually engaged am I? Are they being honest with me when they fill out this survey? And I think my fellows are quite honest. Um, I appreciate that from them. Um, but those sorts of more quantitative data, I think, would have been very helpful. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because we know that learning behaviours don't always equate to learning outcomes, but they're a little bit of a start. Well, tell me, Tracy, um, your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I think about um, identifying, you know, whether or not a program has been successful, I typically think a lot about learning analytics and the different types of learning analytics that are afforded, you know, with us um, online. And, you know, I think uh, Sarah's mentioning it would be really nice to have had some descriptive analytics describing what happened, um, how people were actually using the platform to help inform, you know, the better ways to redes- to design the platform and design the, the program. Um, I think we were able to look a little bit at the diagnostic of why did it happen? So assessing learners' motivations and behaviors and, and what was actually going on for the learner that might have encouraged them to participate in the program. I think the future of learning analytics and looking at programs that are in sort of the predictive and prescriptive analytics. So how can we use intelligent systems to help figure out what's going to happen and provide individualized um, learning for our learners. And that's only going to come with a lot of deep analytics and studying the behaviors of our our learners in more detail. So I think this is an area that's about to explode um, with all of the data that we're getting, especially from our online learners in in this era. Yeah, and some of that is deep and some of it is just practical. I know we just got our stats for 2020 for the International Clinician Educators blog uh, that the Canadians run. And, uh, you know, Tuesday 10 a.m. is when everyone has a read of something. And so it's pretty interesting just to think about that in terms of when you offer things and how much. And uh, I think it's ripe for further work, as you say. I do think that is incredibly important. I also think it's incredibly important that we stay open-minded and creative because I think one of the things about predictive analytics, whether you're talking about patient care or whether you're talking about when somebody reads an article, is that you start to make assumptions and close down the potential for creativity and insight. And I think that the pandemic really forced people all over the world to do all kinds of things in ways that we never would have ever considered an option before this. And so I love predictive analytics and how people make decisions and things, but I'm also constantly trying to remind myself, Sarah, just don't get too caught up in that um, and those boundaries. Mm, Very, very uh, timely thought. All right. Well, I'm going to, at the end, get to where to, where to from here. But just before we do that, I just wanted to briefly reflect on the writing itself. Now, Sarah, if you managed to put all this online in one weekend, I suppose you just wrote the paper up in about one day, did you? <laughs> um, no, uh, I'm terrible about sitting still, right? I'm a good intensivist. I like to move around a lot. Um, uh, I, in complete transparency, I'd actually initially tried to publish this in a more general pediatrics journal with the idea being that I didn't necessarily want it to be specific to pediatric cardiology. I know I touted all the benefits of, of my um, subspecialty earlier on, but there's all kinds of things that you could think about doing this for or with. And so I, I was hoping to be a bit of a broader audience in the beginning. And um, 
having said that, uh, Tracy's fantastic in terms of being a resource and a mentor for me and thinking about how to put on paper the things I was thinking in my head but weren't quite as eloquently thought about. Um, and it was reasonably efficient. Journals being what they are, it took a bit of time to turn around, but you know. Yeah. And uh, I think just, again, it's always good to look at the content of papers, but I think another reason to read this is for the very nice flow of the concepts that come through. So congratulations to you both. Uh, we don't need to worry about which journal it's in because now it's on this podcast and we're going to tweet about it. It's going to get as much readership as if it was in academic medicine, Sarah. It's a, and it is in a wonderful journal. I am certainly not trying to downplay that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's... Um, start to finish up by thinking about what all this means in terms of online learning communities in general, where we go from here. And I might ask you both to reflect on this and uh, maybe you can start, Tracy. Um, what does this kind of experience mean for our future educational practice? And also just as you started to talk about scholarship in this field of online learning. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I just wanted to go back to, uh, you know, was Sarah's description of the projects in Teams, because I think this is a beautiful example of a social community and an online community that really brought together novices and experts together um, for a single goal. And, you know, this is I think uh, the the real meat of it is that you want to bring together learners from all of all different walks, all different expertise levels to learn the culture, to learn together. Um, and I think this is a beautiful example of how that was done well for you know a single learning goal. And so I just wanted to highlight that as as part of reflection. I think that's part of why this worked so well. Is you had you had mentors and mentees and. Um, the novices might have even been mentors to the more senior clinicians in terms of technology. So everybody had something to share and, and an ability to learn. Um, and I thought this was a great example. Now, as far as we go with online learning communities in the future, um, I think we're all part of a big community. And the more that we can share resources um, like we did during the, the COVID, uh, the early days of the COVID pandemic, I mean, never before had we had such an explosion of knowledge and uh, providers thirsty for this knowledge in any way, shape or form. And I think this broke down lots of barriers. People put out resources in earlier stages than they might have just to get information out there. People were seeking knowledge, no matter if it was at the their own institution or elsewhere, and really collaborating. Um, my mentor-in-chief, Dr. Jeff Burns, put on a, a collaborative call that started with just a few um, hospitals and grew to be, um, I think, somewhere along 60 countries with the WHO and the CDC joining every week just on pins and needles hearing what were people seeing around the world. And I think we haven't seen that degree of collaboration and sort of thinking about the greater good. And I think this really brought out that community sense. And I hope that that, that mission that uh, openness will continue way beyond this. Yeah, absolutely. I think we certainly all hope that. Uh, all right, Sarah, can I ask you same question? What does this mean for your future educational practice, uh, that at Boston Children's in pediatric cardiology, and uh, and certainly in terms of future scholarship? Uh, to answer the question for myself, I think um, I'm not sure, and that's kind of exciting. Uh, so I'll leave it that part at that. But to echo what Tracy said a little bit, you know, when we think about, or at least when I think about technology, I find myself defaulting to the now. You know, how can I use technology to change what I'm doing now? When in fact, it's much more fun to think about what could we do in 10 years from now? And and what if I, we had this dream existence, 
um, how could we get there and how could we use technology to get us there? And you think about the incredible global interdependence that we have that's been demonstrated over and over again in the past year. Um, and you think about the potential on that front and how technology could be used if it's used well with education to help solve some of the much bigger problems that we're having, like maldistribution of healthcare workers, for example. My Harvard Macy project group in the Leading Innovations course this spring, all online, group made up of people all over the world, and their project was to create an online medical school that had clinical experiences all over the world to go with it. And I think that's a completely a, a possible thing um, with so much amazing potential. Um, and so thinking about not the now, but the future is where I like to think about technology and education. Mm, getting us to the dream existence. I like this. <laughs> All right. Well, um, podcast listeners, you've been listening to Tracy Walbrink and Sarah Teal and I talking about the paper, Online Education in a Hurry, Delivering Pediatric Graduate Medical Education During COVID-19 uh, by Sarah Teal and colleagues from Progress in Pediatric Cardiology, November last year. And I will post a link to that paper in our podcast notes. But I did want to just thank both Tracy and Sarah for their help in um, deconstructing a pretty interesting topic and uh, and I think giving us some idea about how we might get to that dream existence. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So thanks for listening to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. If you liked what you heard, why not subscribe on iTunes? And while you're there, please give us a rating. It helps other educators and leaders in the health profession find us. For more, go to harvardmacy.org, our website, where there'll be plenty to find, including the blog, as well as links to Harvard Macy on Twitter, at Harvard Macy, and also our Facebook site. I'm Victoria Brazel, signing off for the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. Podcast.